The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Last week, Pastor Peter preached on Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7 to 13. And in that message, he pointed out that one of the greatest benefits of serving the church is not the help that we offer others or even helping God, but the spiritual growth that we ourselves experience through the process of serving. And I think uh, Peter really unpacked that message very ably in a very strong message last week. And even as I was listening to that message on podcast, because I wasn't able to be here last Sunday, uh, I found those principles to be true in my own life as well, particularly regarding this exercising of my teaching gift. Uh, During the years when I was a missionary doctor in Africa, for those five years, uh, I wasn't really preaching regularly on Sundays like I was as a pastor in the U.S. And so rather than immersing myself in Scripture, uh, I sort of found myself immersed in medical textbooks again. Um, And uh, man, after not practicing medicine for like six years, I had to really get back up to speed. And so I was just reading Obi-Gyne books and dermatology books and surgery books and all of that. And then when I became the medical director of the hospital, I became immersed in Excel spreadsheets (laughs) and organizational management and finance books and public health books and third world development books. And this was all a very necessary journey for me, and it was great work that what God was doing through missionary medicine. And yet, at the same time, um, it began to take a toll on me, if I was really honest. I, I felt the difference in the condition of my own heart. And, you know, I've shared this uh, in, in different ways, but it entered me into this season of struggling with stress and anxiety that I had never really experienced before. I was actually having insomnia, and I never have insomnia. If God gifted me with one thing, it's that I can sleep the second my head hits the pillow. And I was literally laying there staring at the ceiling, unable to fall asleep because I felt so much stress. Um, I always thought that those hours spent in sermon preparation was like my generous sacrifice to the church, you know? to get these sermons ready. But there in Africa, years not preparing sermons, I realized how much of a personal blessing that sermon prep was in my own life, how much I needed that immersion in the Word of God. And as I look at my own spiritual journey, I realize that just about every major area of growth in my life happened in the context of serving the church in some capacity, whether it was playing in a gospel band or pastoring a church or a doctor in a hospital. These were opportunities that God opened up in my life for me to grow, for me to learn, for me to understand God's heart. And hearing the testimonies from Pastor Peter's sermon last week, I know that many of you have experienced the same growth by accepting opportunities to serve. In God's economy, every person is expected to serve in some way. It's not like in God's master plan there are some serving Christians 
and some non-serving Christians, people who take and people who give, the, the accurate picture of the church is when you become a believer, when you are saved, you're supposed to serve in some way. Without that, the church simply cannot function properly. And if you refuse that calling to serve, it's not only you who loses out, but the whole body suffers with it. Now I want to say this. Although serving provides an opportunity for personal growth, serving doesn't automatically guarantee that we will grow. And I think that's a very important statement to make. In other words, when it's not done with the right heart, serving can, I'm going to argue, even hinder your spiritual growth. You can become jealous or insecure as you compare yourself with others who are more talented, more able than you. You can become embittered and resentful toward others, feeling like, hey, why do I always have to pick up the slack because these guys are not pulling their weight? Serving can burn you out and leaving you disillusioned and exhausted if you don't learn how to serve by the strength that God provides, but you serve in your own strength. Serving can lead to pride when you think it's, it's all about us, it's not about God. It's like a performance. If we are going to grow by serving, then we need to be properly equipped to do the work to which God has called us. And that's where Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 12 comes in. And it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, if you've been a Christian for a few years, chances are, you may have heard this verse pointed out to you. And on the basis of this verse, you know, some, some of the ways that it's often framed or phrased is something like this, like, you shouldn't really call pastors ministers. Because under the biblical definition, every Christian is actually called to be a minister of the gospel. And so a better way to understand it is that a pastor is an equipper of the saints. Equipping God's people to then be the ministers that he has called them to be, both in the church and in the world. Now, this is true, but I don't think it does full justice if we just stop there. Because the question I want to ask you is, according to these verses, who are the ones that are actually doing the equipping of the saints? It is the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers, all of whom are called to do this work and not just pastors or those in, quote, full-time ministry, the clergy. Now, this is what causes all of the problems <laughs> because the truth is churches and denominations are divided based on this teaching. This is what it looks like in a typical evangelical, non-charismatic church. is you get pastors, teachers dominating the picture, and then you get evangelists and prophets, and you say, I don't really know, to, don't know what to do with those two. 
And so for all intents and purposes, they go unrecognized in the church. We just sort of go, whatever. Um, Now, as you can see, I've actually linked pastors and teachers together with a hyphen. I don't want to get into all of the Greek grammar and everything, but a very strong argument could be made that when it says pastors or shepherds and teachers, what it really has in mind is a single person, okay? A person that is called to be a pastor and a teacher, okay? Uh, Who ends up leading the church primarily through the teaching ministry. And then you throw in their apostles, right? And you say, I don't even know what to do with that one, you know? What is a modern-day apostle? Where do we even fit that into the church governance structure? Now, I want to say this, to be honest with you. As a pastor-teacher myself, it is very tempting to keep things the way they are because the status quo works to my advantage. Because if you look at that, I'm the one that holds all the power then, right? It all flows out of my teaching ministry to control the church the way I want to. But I want to actually make an argument this morning that I think as a church, we need to recover a fuller picture of what Ephesians 4, 11 is actually offering to us as the way in which the saints of God are going to be equipped in ministry. Now, Pastor Eugen is preaching next week. And then the week after that, I am going to follow up with a final message in the series. And I'm going to unpack a bit of that gift of evangelism. But I'm not going to really go into that. For the message this morning, what I want to focus on is this pastor's teachers, or pastor teachers, and then apostles and prophets. And try to explore this. Now, I recognize that I'm going to be walking in a land, uh, a minefield here. And I suspect that many of you come from different backgrounds. Maybe some of you come from more Pentecostal churches where they talk about the fivefold ministry of the church and the fivefold offices and things like that. Others of you, the second you hear words like prophecy and apostle, you're like, uh-uh, this isn't my church anymore, <laughs> you know? I, I don't know where all of you stand in terms of church tradition, But let's just go there, okay? Let's try to unpack it and see what the Bible might have for us as ICC, okay? And if some of you leave ICC, I'm sorry, but I don't know what else to do, okay? Now, I want to give credit for a lot of what I'm going to share today uh, to Dr. Wayne Grudem, who used to be a professor at Trinity, but now is in Arizona, And uh, I took systematic theology with him when I was in seminary uh, uh, many years back. And so he has really shaped my view on a lot of these matters that I want to explore with you this morning. I want to begin by first looking at apostles. But in order to do that, I am going to actually start with Old Testament prophets. Okay? Now, in the Old Testament, there were these men that were identified as prophets who spoke the word of God. They spoke the exact word of God. Not their interpretation of the word of God, but the word of God. Jeremiah chapter 1-9 represents as well. It says, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. Okay? My words in your mouth. And so it was 
when you read the Old Testament, it becomes very common for the prophecies that these prophets spoke to be spoken in the first-person perspective of God's voice himself. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 to 3 is an example of that. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now here is the oracle. And then Isaiah says, I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So the prophet is speaking in the first person, but it is clear that it is God who is speaking through this prophet. And the message of the Old Testament was very clear. If a single prophecy that the prophet utters does not come to pass as he promised it would, he is a false prophet. And that charge was punishable by death. You are to kill him. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. If what a prophet claims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. That prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. But here is the thing. Once a prophet established that he was genuine, that he was of the, from the Lord, their words were beyond challenge. They were simply to be accepted and obeyed as the very words of God. Anything less than that was considered disobedience and rebellion against God himself. That's why, historically, basically almost all the books in the Old Testament were written by somebody that was at some point called a prophet. Because if you're speaking the very words of God, then that's God's word. That's equal to Scripture. And so as we move into the church age, it seems obvious when it's all this talk about the Holy Spirit pouring out gifts that are speaking in tongues and word of knowledge and word of wisdom and discerning spirits and then prophecy that the mantle would be passed on from these Old Testament prophets to these New Testament prophets. That seems logical that that's what's happening. But I think Grudem makes a very strong case that that's not actually what's happening. A strong argument could be made that the continuity is not between the Old Testament prophet and the New Testament prophet. Instead, the apostles are the ones who have inherited the role of the Old Testament prophets in the church age. In other words, like the Old Testament prophets, the apostles are the ones who speak with absolute divine authority and who have written most of the books in the New Testament. It's the apostles who did that. Look at the linkage that Peter makes between the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament pro apostles. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 2. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Do you hear that? He's basically saying in the former times, God spoke to you through the prophets. And in this day, he is speaking to you through your apostles. 
Paul makes the same connection between the prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles in the New Testament. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 to 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, this raises an obvious question. Who are these apostles that we're even talking about? Well, we see that initially it was the 12 disciples who were following Jesus in his earthly ministry. In fact, that becomes one of the qualifications of an apostle, is that you had to have seen the risen Lord. You had to, to have seen Jesus Christ and been with him in person. We know that Judas, after betraying Jesus, killed himself, and so he was replaced by Matthias. Later on, the New Testament reveals that Paul and Barnabas were considered apostles, as well as James, the brother of Jesus. Now, there are some other names thrown out there in the New Testament that we're not sure about. But at least the names that you see here, it seems pretty clear that these men were established, without a doubt, as apostles in the early church. And following the tradition of the Old Testament prophet, Paul talks about the source of the words that the apostles are speaking. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to 12. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. It's like a prophet, right? I got a revelation that led me to write the letter that I wrote to you. So these are not my words. These are the literal words of God given to me by supernatural revelation. That's why the apostles were able to claim the same authority that the Old Testament prophets did. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man but God. Who gives you his Holy Spirit? That is some pretty bold claim, right? I could never say that as a pastor, saying, if you reject my sermon, you're rejecting God. You know? I need more humility than that, okay? To realize I could be wrong on many points. But look at what Paul says. If you reject my instruction, you are rejecting God himself. Look at what Peter says about Paul's letters. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 to 16. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. It's amazing. Peter, referencing the letters of Paul, equates them with the Old Testament. He says, these letters are scripture. Paul makes it clear that even the prophets in the church are under the submission of the authority of these apostles. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37 to 38. If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. <laughs> you hear that? 
I don't care who claims to be a prophet among you and says, oh, don't listen to Paul. Don't listen. No, he says, that's not how it works. In the way that God has set things up, the apostles come first. What we say to you is of absolute authority. And if someone prophesies and tells you to direct you away from our teaching, then that's the person that's wrong. That's the person you reject, even if they're so-called a prophet. So I hope you can see from what I'm saying here that there is this very clear message that in the Old Testament, God spoke his very words through the prophets. But in the New Testament church, God is speaking that same authoritative, inerrant word through the apostles. They are the ones that have carried the tradition of the, uh, the prophets into the New Testament age. They were granted a very special level of authority that God called them to in order to establish the church and write scripture, just like the prophets did in the Old Testament. And I'm going to say this. It's also why I believe apostles no longer exist in the church today. If anyone emerges in our midst in our day and says, hey, I have the same authority as Paul of Peter, and I'm going to write some letters myself. I have the letter to ICC, and I want you to circulate that as scripture. I want you to memorize verses out of my letter. We would categorically reject that. And the truth is, <laughs> when I was a missionary in Africa, there were these cult churches that were led by these, quote, apostles. And they were writing scripture. And they were making all kinds of claims leading God's people astray. But in my own personal conviction, as I look at scripture, I think it's pretty clear that that age of the apostles is done with. Okay? Now, that brings us to the gift of prophecy in the church age, which I believe is not done. Okay? In order to understand the New Testament prophecy teaching, it may be helpful to say a, role, a word first about the role of the teaching ministry in a church. I want to say this. Whenever teaching is talked about in the New Testament, it is always tightly connected with the reading of God's word. Okay? So in other words, the gift of teaching when God gives that to a leader is in essence the gift of a person's ability to study the word of God and interpret it and then help others to understand what it is saying. And this is a huge responsibility because often based on that interpretation, you're going to guide the church in doctrine and ethics. And basically you're saying, this is what the word of God means for your life. And so it's not surprising that when the Bible does that, it often links teaching to elder leadership, to pastors, okay? Because the responsibility to handle the word of God correctly is very great. That's why I made the argument even earlier about that pastor-teacher being really one position, hyphenated together, okay? Um, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and then able to teach. So there is this heavy teaching component that's placed upon the elders of the church who are ruling the church. 
Um, and that's a very important ministry of the church. I want to say that that's really at the heart of ICC is the study of the Word of God that then informs everything about the community that we're building here in our midst. But I want to make an argument that there is a place for the prophetic word as well as we study scripture. And it's very different from the teaching word. Um, Because the prophetic word comes by direct revelation given to a person through the work of the Holy Spirit. Wayne Grudem says this, Prophecy is a word from the Lord that brings God's guidance to specific details of our lives, gives much personal edification, and brings to our times of worship an intense awareness of God's presence. Okay? Now, Dennis and Rita Bennett say this, Prophecy is not, quote, inspired preaching. In preaching, the intellect, training, skill, background, and education are involved and inspired by the Holy Spirit. The sermon may be written down ahead of time or given on the spot, but it comes from the inspired intellect. Prophecy, on the other hand, means that the person is bringing the words the Lord gives directly. It is from the spirit, not the intellect. Okay? So what I want to help you to understand is this, is when you sit under teaching ministry, the way the Holy Spirit works is that he is engaging your critical thinking faculties, your rational mind, as you're thinking and processing and you're looking at that verse and goes, oh, that's what it means, and you gain insight, and there is an impact of that teaching ministry that is very real and very powerful and very necessary for our edification and for our growth. That's what's happening every Sunday behind this pulpit is there is teaching going out, and then you are partnering with that teaching as you engage your mind and process these truths and wrestle with them. And then you get convictions and insights out of them. But the impact of the prophetic word comes primarily from the fact that a prophecy is a direct revelation from God. And it has a different way of hitting a person than a teaching ministry. What I'm suggesting is, in a well-balanced church, I think we actually need both. We need both. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 Verse 25, 4 to 25 says, But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his hearts will be laid bare, so he will fall down and worship God, explaining, God is really among you. As Paul points out, there is an immediate impact, not from some insight that was unlocked by teaching, But from the fact that at times, because prophecy is a direct revelation from God, it exposes the hidden secrets of the heart that in some ways we say no man could know. Prophecy, because it comes from direct revelation, are often powerful because there's a certain timeliness to that message that only God can know of what the condition of your heart is and what the circumstances of your life are that maybe people just don't understand and yet God knows. 
And so if he gives a word through a prophet, you realize that is exactly what I needed to hear in this season of my life. Only God could have known that and ministered to me in that way. I think talking about this idea of prophecy being a direct revelation versus teaching, it also carries a unique impact in that here's the truth is when it's teaching ministry, it does go through the filter of the human mind. And a lot of times we're processing and we're using our education and we're using our intellect. And so we come out with this teaching. But sometimes what I've personally experienced in the power of prophecy is because it's a direct revelation, it can come out from left field. And you say, whoa, you know? And it's a perspective that no one really had thought through because it's God's perspective on the matter that can break through in almost an alien way and shake up our world and give us a glimpse into the heart of God. Because often we are trapped in our human wisdom, but through a prophetic word, we can gain insight into our lives. And that prophecy can shed a whole new light with which we never evaluated our lives or our heart. I don't know if any of you have this kind of personal experience with the prophetic ministry before. But it's incredibly powerful when you receive a word like that. And you say, how could anyone have known that? And sometimes you realize, I didn't even know that (laughs) until you hear that prophetic word and something deep in your soul just responds to that message. I want to say this. Unlike the word of the prophets in the Old Testament, and I would add the word of the apostles in the New Testament, prophecy today should not be viewed as the inerrant word of God. In other words, if someone's going to prophesy in the church today, they should never say, thus says the Lord. Okay? Very dangerous language. I think if you claim to be a prophet in the church today, it would be much better to say something like, I sense the Lord prompting me to share this with you. And I don't know, but just pray on it and see how God leads you. I think a much more humble approach to prophecy is called for based on the teachings on the nature of prophecy in the Bible. Throughout the New Testament, we are given these commands to carefully evaluate and discern prophecies that we receive. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. It doesn't say that in the Old Testament, does it? But he's saying in this expression of prophecy in the church today, if someone utters a prophecy, you don't do, oh, if the prophet spoke, let us all bow and do that. No, it says... Weigh those words, evaluate it, and see, is this from the Lord? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 19 to 22. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. So he's saying two things here that seem at odds with each other, but are really not. It says, don't hold prophecies in contempt. It seems like this was an issue even in the early church, right? As people are like, I don't like that prophecy stuff. Like it just causes a big mess. It's chaos. 
And it'd be better just to shut the whole thing down. But he says, don't hold this gift that God has given you in contempt, but test everything. Because they don't speak with that same authority of the Old Testament prophets. You are to assess, is this in my own spirit as I pray to God, what I believe God is telling me. As I said earlier, in the Old Testament, these prophets spoke with absolute authority. If you go against them, you go against God. This is not the case with prophecy in the church today. In fact, there's an example of a prophecy given to Paul, and he actually disregards it because as an apostle, he has gotten, I believe, a, a different sense from the Lord. Let me give you one example of, I think, what prophecy looks like in the New Testament age that we're living in right now. In the book of Acts, we're introduced to a man who is labeled a prophet by the name of Agabus. And in Acts chapter 11, we're first introduced to him in verses 27 to 28, where it says, During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. Now, toward the end of the book of Acts, Agabus shows up again, and he gives Paul a specific prophecy to him about what's going to happen in the very near future in his life. In Acts chapter 21, verse 10 to 11, it says, After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, The Holy Spirit says, In this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Very dramatic scene here, right? Agabus uses Paul's own belt, ties up his own hands and feet as a living illustration to Paul of the prophecy and says, you see this picture? This is exactly what's going to happen to you. The Jews are going to tie you up and they're going to hand you into the custody of the Romans. Now here's what happened historically. The broad strokes of that prophecy came true. Paul ran into trouble with the Jews and ended up in Roman custody a little while after that prophecy when he went to Jerusalem. But here's the thing. There were a couple of factual details in this prophecy that were inaccurate, that didn't happen exactly as Agabus said it would. The first detail is that Agabus said it was going to be the Jews who tie you up like this. But that's not what actually happened. Luke actually tells us what happened. In Acts chapter 21, verse 33, it says, The commander came up and arrested him, speaking of Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Now that commander is a Roman officer, not a Jew. Do you hear that? So it's the Romans that bound Paul, not the Jews. Agabus got that wrong. The second error in Agabus' prophecy was a statement that the Jews would hand over Paul to the Gentiles. That word hand over is actually very technical, talking about you just literally take something and then you, there, give it to someone. And that's actually not the way it unfolded either. In Acts chapter 21, verse 31 to 33, 32, look at what it says. 
While they were trying to kill him, speaking of Paul, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. See, based on Luke's account, this wasn't a tidy handover of the Jews to the Romans of Paul. Instead, the way it unfolded was the Jews were actually trying to kill Paul. And so this huge ruckus arose in the town. And the Romans, hey, what's going on over there? So they run with a bunch of soldiers. And they are the ones that actually rescue Paul from before he can be killed by these Jews. And they take him into their custody. So it doesn't quite unfold the way Agabus said. It's interesting, huh? It's like a partially correct prophecy. Some of it is true, and some of it he missed the mark. And what Grudem ponders is this, is maybe this is actually what Agabus saw. Maybe he saw Paul in chains, surrounded by Roman soldiers, and then an angry Jewish mob around him. Maybe that was the vision that Agabus got. And based on his own interpretation, he said to Paul, the Jews are going to bind you and hand you over to the Romans. And he got some of that picture right, but in truth, he got some of it wrong. And what Grudem offers to us is that might be actually a pretty accurate picture of the way prophecy plays out in the New Testament is God does speak to his saints through prophetic revelation. But the truth is we are imperfect messengers. We are not inerrant. And so sometimes we can even get that message wrong. And we can relay it, but there needs to be discernment and wisdom and the word of God that scrutinizes that message. Not, oh, thus saith the Lord, we all better obey it right away, otherwise we will be dead. And to me, I find that to be a very intriguing possibility for the church today that seems to be so caught in this war of charismatics versus non-charismatics and everything that that baggage carries with those labels. Although the prophecy in our time may not be inerrant like it was in the Old Testament, I do believe it is an essential gift that God offers to his people so that we can be equipped for the work of ministry. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 through 4 says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself. But he who prophesies edifies the church. As Paul makes clear, the whole purpose of this prophecy is to build up and strengthen believers toward their spiritual growth. It is to comfort those who are in distress, to encourage the discouraged. I, I'll say this. One of the struggles that I had with my past encounters with prophetic ministry was that it always seemed like a ministry of condemnation and judgment. You know, it was always an exposure and like, I know every dirty thing you ever did, and now I'm about to announce it to the world, you know? Listen, there may be a time and a place for that kind of work of the Holy Spirit, 
But what I see emphasized in Paul's own teaching on the reason for the gift of prophecy is more stated in the positive of encouraging those whose faith is failing, who want to give up, who are tired of serving, who are struggling and losing vision of Christ. And the role of the prophetic ministry is to encourage the discouraged, strengthen the weak-hearted, to comfort the mourning. That is what the Holy Spirit desires to do through this prophetic ministry, is to strengthen the saints with a word of revelation. As I mentioned in the very first message in this series, I think a lot of us have hang-ups about serving. We feel burnt out. We feel overstretched. We feel disillusioned. We become sort of like a turtle receding into its shell. Very defensive, self-protective posture. Don't ask me to serve. I'm just not fit right now. I'm in no condition to serve. And I wonder if even here at ICC, there could be a role for this prophetic ministry of the voice of God spoken into your life that could strengthen your feeble spirit, your heart that won't serve. Um, now, you know, I, let me wrap up with this. I suspect that some of you may be a bit uncomfortable with this message. Uh, man, are you saying ICC is going to go charismatic? <laughs> I, I just hate the fact that all of this discussion of spiritual gifts has been trapped into this debate about charismatic versus non-charismatic. really bothers me a lot because we throw labels at things and then we attach to it all kinds of baggage. And I'll be honest with you. <laughs> As I was preparing this message, I feel like I'm shooting myself in the foot because in my own spiritual test, uh, journey, in my own testimony, I have had struggles with prophetic movements that I felt actually did a lot of damage to the church. I firsthand witnessed a lot of the junk that can happen when someone claims to be a prophet and ends up really, uh, some of my closest friends have walked away from the faith because of the abuse of these gifts. It's very real to me, the dangers of inviting prophecy in a church. And yet, I also want to say this. There were a couple key moments in my life when I felt like giving up and a prophetic word was given to me. And it ministered to me in a way that the teaching word just couldn't do. It, it caused this well to break open in my soul that just I realized this is God knowing the mysteries of my heart and speaking to that and encouraging me to go on, which I long for here at ICC. If you look at Paul's situation, he was speaking all this teaching in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 to a church that was in what John MacArthur calls charismatic chaos. It was just a mess jealousy, rampant, people using spiritual gifts to one-up each other, divisiveness, fighting, chaos, everyone, it sounds like the way he's describing it, people are just trying to prophesy over each other. Oh, I got a word from the Lord. No, I got a word from the Lord. And they were just trying to shout each other down. And it's just amazing to me that Paul didn't shut it down and say, you go in that corner, you go in that corner, everyone grab your Bible and have quiet time and none of this, you know? No more speaking in tongues. No more prophecy because this is ridiculous. No, he says, listen, what you need to do is rediscover the way of love and exercise these gifts in the right way that God intended. 
Because you're not doing this out of love. You're doing this out of jealousy, out of self-interest, out of boasting, and trying to make a name for yourself because you call yourself a prophet. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire these spiritual gifts. Quoting from the prophet Joel, Peter said on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 17 to 18, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I think one of the unique hallmarks of the church age is the widespread way in which God is pouring out his Holy Spirit among people to empower them with visions and dreams and prophecies. In the Old Testament, it was limited to just a a handful of few people that were given the privilege to be called prophet. And yet in these last days, there is a special anointing happening in the church to enable common men and women to be able to utter revelations that come from God. But it all must happen in order, under the authority of church leadership. And I wonder what would happen in ICC if we took this invitation to pray and earnestly desire these spiritual gifts to be realized in our midst. I'm going to end with this, a little bit of an extended quote, but this is what Grudem says. If the understanding of the gift of prophecy which has been proposed in this study is correct, it could do much to overcome the problem of spectator Christianity in contemporary churches. This is because the activity of Bible teaching in the congregation is generally restricted to one or a few recognized church leaders. But the gift of prophecy is much different and carries no such restrictive use. Instead, all Christians are given permission to prophesy in church if God so prompts them. We should therefore expect if opportunity for such prophesying were given that our worship services would include much broader participation by both women and men in order that, quote, all may learn and all be encouraged. Finally, a note of encouragement. It may be that the absence of prophecy in many churches today is due primarily not to the absence of revelations from the Holy Spirit, but rather to the failure of believers to recognize those those revelations when they come and to understand that they are given for the benefit of the whole congregation. They have not fulfilled their purpose until they are reported to others. Perhaps church leaders today can do more to encourage Christians to mention such promptings from the Lord when they occur. No doubt in a hesitant and uncertain way at first, but nevertheless with an attitude of seeking to help and edify the congregation in this way. If that should be what the Holy Spirit wants. Some may be uneasy about this. Who knows what will happen? Yet if if there are mature, biblically sound leaders in the congregation, and if if they are ready to evaluate the prophecy publicly, if they sense a need to do so, no harm will be done. In fact, there may begin to be times when the Holy Spirit gives unusual confirmation of his working by simultaneously revealing the same idea, theme or idea to several different people in the congregation. At other times, there may be prophecies that in the space of a few words strike through calloused hearts and bring tears of repentance or heartfelt songs of hope and praise. In fact, the overall result will most likely be a greatly increased sense of the living presence of the Lord in the midst of his people an exciting new depth of awareness in which everyone present, quote, will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray.